The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of June 17th, 2019. On this week's show, Canadian national team star Diana Matheson will join us to discuss the United States' strong start at the Women's World Cup, the rise of the European soccer powers, and the controversy over American-style celebrations. Sports Illustrated Scott Price will also be here to talk about his cover story on Rich Paul, who happens to be the agent for LeBron James and Anthony Davis, who will be playing together very soon. And the Athletics' Ethan Strauss will come on the program for a post-mortem on the Golden State Warriors season, perhaps a post-mortem on the Golden State Warriors dynasty, perhaps, Stefan, perhaps. Here with me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, the author, definitively, of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh, who's the author of The Queen. That's me. How are things going in Queenland? Things are good. Going to New Orleans this week for a book event Wednesday. Be there. Zion New Williams New Orleans. I don't think he'll be officially a member of the squad yet. True. True. On, uh, on June the 19th. Anthony Davis definitely not coming to your book reading in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, if, he, if Zion was there, I think he would go to the JCC, though, in, uh, in Uptown New Orleans. It's going to be his spot. They've got a good, uh, good gym, good, good facilities. Enjoy it, Josh. Well, as you know, I'm taking off for, for France to enjoy the knockout rounds of the Women's World Cup. Uh, the U.S. has qualified, so uh, you uh, did not buy your tickets too soon. Well, don't say that, because if they lose to Sweden in the final group stage game, I have bought tickets assuming that the U.S. wins the group and advances well, due to them scoring all those goals against Thailand, they have the goal differential tiebreaker. So a draw or a win will be enough. A draw or a win will be enough. They just can't lose. They will disgrace. We are Americans, Josh. We do not lose. On that note, <laughs> let's get on with the show. In Paris on Sunday, the United States women's national soccer team beat Chile 3 to nothing to lock up a spot in the knockout rounds at the Women's World Cup. Neither of those facts was surprising, so once again, the storyline was about how the U.S. team celebrated. This time, instead of sliding leg kicks, dog piles, and choreographed line dances after goals 9 through 13 against a bunch of semi-pro and amateur players, the clever Americans decided to troll their critics with golf claps. You may have found this to be a powerful and affirming display of fuck the world insouciance, or, if you're me, a petty and defensive response to being called out for unsportsmanlike behavior to help us sort through our emotions and to talk about much more from the World Cup. We are joined by Diana Matheson. She's played for Team Canada more than 200 times, but alas, is missing this tournament with an injury and instead is relegated to the fourth estate doing commentary for TSN in Canada. Hey, Diana, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Uh, nine of the 16 knockout round teams are set. Canada, England, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, and the United States. Let's start with the Americans. They played two of the most technically lacking teams in the field, Chile and, of course, Thailand. As a player, Diana, what do you try to get out of games like these, which are not really testing you anywhere close to the fullest? And then as an observer, what can we conclude? Because it's easy to walk away from the 16 nothing goal differential and think, wow, the U.S. is unbeatable. Yeah, I mean, it's not always the worst thing to play a bit weaker opponent in the opening game. There can be a lot of nerves and anticipation around the World Cup, so it's good to get eased into a tournament. Um, that said, I'm not sure the Americans needed to be eased in that that much. I think when that group was drawn, everyone you know around the world rolled their eyes a little bit and knew this result was coming. Um, what can you take from it? I mean, the Americans still looked good. Everyone knows they're a strong team, and they've got so many weapons on the bench and on the field. And they're more capable than anyone else of blowing out a team. But I think nobody expected 13-0. Yeah, I mean, the question marks coming into the tournament for the Americans was on the back line. And do you is there a risk of kind of getting complacent? Like, at the very least, we just have no idea what's happening with the American defense just because they haven't been tested at this point. Yeah, that's the one question mark for sure. And I'm not sure what more they can do instead of, you know, try and stay tuned in all game and even get forward when they can. I mean, the U.S. can throw their fullbacks forward in the attack tons in those games, although I'm pretty sure I saw Becky Sauerbrunn getting forward last game, too, which everyone probably got excited about. She's never scored a goal for the national team in like 160. Thank you. But yeah, even against the Swedes, I'm not sure how much they're going to be tested, to be honest, if the Swedes are going to, you know, go like Rio and defend a bit more than they're going to attack, then... It might be a, a bit of a abrupt transition into a really tough knockout round game, which could be the only, you know, the downfall for this group the U.S. in. So the big surprise in the tournament so far, maybe it's not a surprise, is the strength of the European teams. And this has been attributed to the rise of club soccer in Europe and these big kind of storied clubs, whether in Germany or France or Spain, kind of finally at long last giving some money and attention to um, their women's sides. Do you think that there is a direct line there? And have you been surprised by the strength of some of these European teams? Uh, Both, I think. I think, I mean, Europe's kind of been the strongest region for a while. And there's probably you probably put half a dozen at least other European countries in that would also blow out Thailand. So there's a lot of depth in that region. Uh, I I mean, Spain is a really good example, I think, of how supporting domestic soccer and throwing money into the big clubs like Barcelona, Atletico Madrid have really paid off. The Spanish team has come up huge in the last few years. Their youth teams have been doing really well at Youth World Cups. And I think this, this tournament was kind of a great platform for them to show that so they've been a really good news story for me that said they've been a a little disappointing so far in this tournament i'm looking forward to the knockout round to see how that goes yeah and these countries italy the netherlands spain they're newbies to the upper tier of, of of women's football i mean these are countries that in some cases banned women's soccer outright england banned women's soccer for 50 years from the 20s to the early 70s And even now, as we've seen the rise of England and France and Germany, of course, which has been been um, competent, beyond competent, two time World Cup Mm -hmm. winner for for a couple decades, even now, 
the amount of money that is getting invested is minimal compared to what gets invested by the clubs and the men's teams. I think if, if some of these clubs and the federations in Europe really wanted to, to support women's soccer at a higher level, you know, the United States yeah. would not be coming into this tournament as a favorite and there would be seven or eight teams that would all be at that level. And maybe we're just four or eight years away from that happening. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I'm some of these countries without a, currently a strong women's program, I mean, the barriers to entry into becoming one, I think, are not that high. Like, you can invest in your women's league, you can invest in your women's national team and the youth systems for still far, far less than what you're paying your men's team. And kind of the progression some of these countries have made have been so quick. Like, Spain, again, they've only really been investing for, you know, three, four years really seriously, and now they're in the conversation as one of the top teams in the World Cup. Yeah, and they're doing the bare minimum at this point to support competitive teams in Europe. Uh, I saw a tweet from a, a German athletic trainer, a woman that trains soccer players, saying that the German national team doesn't even have an actual athletic trainer, strength coach, or sports scientist on staff. Apparently, a co-trainer with athletic training duties is sufficient, LOL. So there's, yeah, there, there's so room to grow. Yeah. Yeah, um, some, I mean, there's great examples out there of clubs and national teams doing the, the most and the best things, and then you'll get in the same league or the same tournament, just like the opposite, where there's, there's not the staff or there's facilities or whatever it is. Stefan, you said that if in the hypothetical universe in which all of these European nations that on the men's side have been traditional powers, if they invested in the women's game, the U.S. wouldn't come into this tournament as the favorite. Like, obviously, this is like a barroom debate. We're not going to be able to solve that on this podcast, but I'm not actually so sure that that's true. And that's an interesting question. Is there something inherent about these nations and their histories with soccer and their training methods that would somehow vault them past the U.S., which has an incredibly strong tradition of women's soccer, has an enormous number of young girls who play the sport and idolize this team. Like I would put, I would, I would think that the U.S. and its like particular history and the strength of its system for women would potentially trump, you know, these these other countries and their like long and storied histories with soccer. Well, Diana, I'm curious what you think on this because the strength mm -hmm. of, of US women's soccer has been that A, you know, the country has had this incredible head start, if you want to call it that. Uh, and B, that the college system has been a successful producer of talent. So I think like with men's soccer, we could be facing in the next few years this debate about whether college soccer is the best route to create a number one ranked national team or whether the club system that that predominates in Europe is going to be ultimately more successful. You're already starting to see small changes. There's a 13-year-old girl who turned down her, her scholarship to North Carolina to turn pro and she trains with the Portland Thorns of the United Women's Soccer League. Um, the, you know, the league that you've played in, you play for the Utah Royals, it is still sort of trying to find its legs. And what do you think, you know, and this applies to the Canadian players too, because most of you are playing in the United States. What threat do you see from the way that the U.S. system or the North American system is structured vis-a-vis -vis Europe? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And that's really been changing over the length of my career, kind of what the role the NCAA plays in the development pathway. Uh, I think, like you said, the strength of the history in U.S. women's soccer is huge, that you guys got a head start. I mean, your your population and just how many girls and women play soccer 
and your, I mean, the financial resources, these things are big factors and they're hard to overcome for other countries. They make a big difference because I don't think the U.S. has the best youth development system at all. I think there's other countries that do it much better, not necessarily Canada, but, you know, Japan, Germany, Spain. Now, I think technically they develop a lot more players consistently more than the U.S. does, like with a bit more intent. And I think we're already at the point in the conversation where the NCAA isn't developing better players. Like, I am all for these players going to university, getting education, absolutely. But if you're talking about them as strictly soccer players, the NCAA is not developing them the way a top pro team would. So Thailand actually won a game in 2015. And then in 2019, we saw after the 13 to nothing defeat to the U.S., they scored a goal against Sweden. And just the mm-hmm. amount of joy on the sideline when they scored that goal from the manager, from the players, about what they accomplished. It's not like that's that's great. And it's wonderful that they were able to pull something um, positive out of their experience. But it's it's clearly not like a straight line where that victory that they had in 2015 didn't put the team on a different level. It seems like they've regressed or maybe just the competition is is stronger. Um, but I guess maybe that transitions us, Stefan, into a conversation about how the stronger teams should comport themselves against the weaker teams. There's obviously been a lot of uh, criticism of the U.S. and a lot of defense of the U.S. women for their uh, method of celebration. You and your Canadian colleagues, former players on TSN, were among the most direct in, in criticizing the way that the Americans celebrate. And I'm totally on your side here. I mean, I think that, yes, you celebrate, obviously, but you also have to recognize the moment and you have to recognize your opponent and recognize the degree of difficulty of what you're accomplishing. And I understand, yeah, World Cup, it was a release. Everyone's very happy. First goal, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you know, this is not the way you would sort of dunk on on, on, a, on a vastly, vastly inferior opponent. And I got the sense that that's where you guys fell in all of this because like the United States, you're used to playing these minnows in CONCACAF and in other countries and winning by six, seven, eight goals. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a bit of a whirlwind. I'm a little new to this uh, media thing. So it was uh, a bit fun that we started a controversy so early on. Yeah, it was. It just seemed like we've seen them blow out teams before, and we've seen them maybe celebrate a little too much in games. But there's, yeah, something from the nine goals onward just made you cringe a little. Like the feeling around it wasn't quite right. I think Stefan, you maybe said it in a tweet that it just felt out of proportion to what was happening on the field. You can celebrate for sure, and especially when you've got players scoring their first World Cup goal, like Rose Lavelle or Lindsay Horan. Like absolutely celebrate those, but. That's not really what we were commenting on. It was kind of, you know, when you've got your senior players going off at like 9, 10, 11, 12 goals and the benches into it. And I mean, Jill was, Jill was into it. And I, I put it mostly on her too. Like she was obviously, and I think Pino said they had maybe had some pent up energy because they were playing pretty late in the tournament, which is probably the case too. But it was just, yeah, out of proportion. And we, I think we just called it spade a spade. Um, you said Jill, Jill Ellis, the the coach yeah. of, of the U.S. team. And I've noticed that, and you alluded to this, this can is we, not the first time. Go ahead. Can we just note that, uh, Diana, you said that Jill Ellis should be embarrassed? Yeah, because I said, too, I've been in games like that where we're blowing out teams and maybe a teammate 
or a coach kind of reacts out of proportion to maybe where we are in the game. Like, it's the seventh goal. You just scored on a PK. Like, don't do a lap of the field. And, like, that's happened with me on the field, and the feeling was embarrassment. So that's where I would have been if I was in her shoes. I haven't seen anyone point out that this isn't the first time that Jill Ellis, whom you mentioned, the coach of the U.S. team, has over-celebrated. I've seen them do this against regional weaklings. Um, so it is a pattern with the United States. Um, and I don't know, to me, you know, you're playing the equivalent of a high school team. You, you, you tone it down. Well, I've seen but, some international commentators say that this is just Americans being Americans that, and that, you know, teams in, you know, Europe or else, you know, maybe Canada as well wouldn't celebrate in this manner. Um, I don't know how you... If, if you feel like this is a like an ugly American situation, Diana? Yeah, like I'm, I'm definitely pretty hesitant to paint it with that brush. I think um, two things, like you said, they've done it in the past uh, for sure. And that's maybe why it was a little easier for us to say, like, this is too much. Because we saw it back in Olympic qualifying for 2012. The tournament was in Vancouver and they were celebrating like crazy at like eight plus goals against right. like a Haiti. Right. And at that time, that was uh, Pia Sundhaga coaching, and it was very clear she was kind of leading the, that behavior. So like, you, then you've got a Swede kind of behind the scenes egging them <laughs> on, and now you've got a British coach, too. So I definitely wouldn't paint it with the American brush, but I think the fact that you know myself and Kaylin had been around for that tournament, too, so we'd seen it before, I think we were a little quicker just to call them out on it. So... You guys are kind of are, are on the same page. I'm gonna like push back okay. mm-hmm. a little bit because I also feel like in this debate, as in all debates, people on both sides just pick out the worst argument on the other side to put to push back on. Like like people are saying, Oh, you're saying don't celebrate any goals, or you know, like obviously uh-huh. that's not what the argument is. I think the strongest argument counter to what you guys are saying is essentially who cares? And that this conversation has overwhelmed the tournament. Um, and I know, Diana, you didn't know what the response was going to be to what you were saying, but on whether it's on social media or, or anywhere, there's this kind of force multiplier mm-hmm. effect where when, um, you know, maybe it's, it's, maybe it's good to have like five to 10 people pointing out that um, these celebrations were a little bit over the top. But do we really need like 18,000 people Pointing it out. Well, except that I don't think that it's only on this side. There's been, I think, a a lot of the the bigger voices, national columnists, um, uh, gender studies professors, sort of turning it into a larger debate, saying the women should have the right to do whatever they want and you shouldn't police the behavior on the field. And that takes it to an even another level, especially when you have players like yourselves, like Julie Foudy, like Hope Solo, like Kate Margraff, former U.S. internationals, um, criticizing these celebrations as excessive given the circumstances. I mean, look, the most celebrated celebration in sports history involved a U.S. women's soccer player. And I don't think any of us 20 years later would say – oh, that was bad. We're trying to police Brandy Chastain. That was the wrong thing. Though at the time, I guess there were people that that got mad that she took off her jersey. Um, but now it is iconic, that moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is a double standard at work, Diana, but I don't think it's about gender. I think it's about 
the U.S. team and what it has been marketed as and what they have stood for, hard work, mm-hmm. the embodiment of being powerful and strong and successful women, and, yeah. about, and about sort of being role models for girls. And as role models, who would stand up and say, hey, when you've scored your 13th goal against the worst team in your rec league, you mm-hmm. should, like, dance around the field? You can't have it both ways, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a few things there. Like the Brandy Chastain moment, I mean, I I can't remember the time because I would have been a bit young to remember any pushback, but that was iconic. And I mean, even us in Canada, we kind of grew up watching the 99ers and like that is infamous and totally in proportion to winning a World Cup on home soil. Like, do what you want there. Uh, I think I I think there is I I think maybe from your comments there is something I feel bad about from this that it got blown up. And I mean, I know living in the U.S., anything that gets blown up on social media is like a factor of 100 kind of compared to anywhere else you're living. So that happens. But yeah, the pushback around it and just the attention, I think, was for two reasons. One, there's nothing else going on in the tournament right now for the U.S. Like they played two very weak teams. So there's nothing to talk about for a while. They're going to win their group. So that's maybe one thing. You just need a story. And then... I mean, they do, they're just under constant scrutiny all the time, aren't they? They're just, they're always pushing for something that's much bigger for them and it's controversial and they get picked apart for it for a lot of things they're doing. So I think if there is one thing that I don't feel good about, like I would say my mic remarks all day, but the fact that it got blown back on them and then you have to get, you know, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino trying to justify their celebrations, yeah. Right. I'd rather we were talking about their pay fight against the U.S. Yeah, Soccer Federation absolutely. and how they have generated, you know, more attention, more love, more goodwill and more revenue in some cases than their counterparts in men's soccer in the United States. Diana yeah. Matheson is a Canadian international soccer player. Alas, missing the World Cup. She plays for the Utah Royals. Canada advanced to the knockout stage. Come on, give some love to Canada. Oh, yeah, Canada. We, oh guys, we got to talk Canada. Go for it. Canada, totally underrated. I think the odds against them winning are, are pretty poor right now. So well, that's because you're, you're not playing, person, but yeah. uh-huh. There's good money in betting for Canada right now. They're flying under the radar. They're, they're going to win their group and they're going to do well. That's in spite of Diana Matheson not being in the lineup. Diana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. That was fun. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Over the weekend, as various lame sports were competing for our attention, the NBA reminded us all that no athletic entity is nearly as interesting and dramatic and attention-commanding. Sorry, golf. Less than 48 hours after the Raptors beat the Warriors to win the 2019 title, the Lakers declared their intentions to win it all in 2020, trading an enormous amount of stuff, players and draft picks, and the right to swap draft picks to the New Orleans Pelicans for Anthony Davis. Joining us now to discuss the trade, its implications, and the machinations behind it is Scott Price. He's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author, most recently, of the book Playing Through the Whistle, Steel, Football, and an American Town. Welcome, Scott. Uh, Thanks for having me. 
You are here with us today, Scott, because you wrote an SI cover story about Rich Paul, the agent who represents both Davis and Davis's new teammate, LeBron James. It was Paul who, back in January, told the Pelicans that Davis wanted to be traded. And it was Paul who got roasted when that demand went public, as did the notion that Davis was insistent on going to the Lakers. Now it seems that Anthony Davis and LeBron James and Rich Paul all got what they wanted. Um, my question is, I guess, is this how Rich Paul planned it all? Um, is is he really the puppet master? I would have to say, yeah. Uh, I, w- I went out to see Rich Paul in March. Um, and in February, when it all went down, it was considered a massive humiliation for Rich Paul that this deal didn't happen, you know, uh, uh, at the trade deadline. That, I mean, people that, were saying that the Pelicans were essentially trolling the Lakers and yes. like refusing to respond to their to Magic Johnson's calls, and it was a huge embarrassment for right. everyone. huge embarrassment. And I'll tell you, the one person who wasn't embarrassed at all was Rich Paul. The one person who wasn't losing his head and deciding who won and who lost at that time was Rich Paul. The one person who was playing the long game was Rich Paul. So, So it was fascinating to walk in there because... You know, I was out there, and I was going to Lakers games, and, and you know, there was sort of this air of, of low-grade panic in the air at the Stable Center. And then I go to Rich Paul's office, and it's just incredibly calm. And I, and I can't really, you know, obviously offices are calmer than, than arenas, but, you know, the, there, there was not even the sort of usual undercurrent that you'd expect from um, a guy in the center of such a whirlwind. And it was, it was impressive to me, I have to say. Um, and so, so um, you know, did he have this master plan? Uh, I, I don't know if he drew it up exactly the way it happened. Um, you know, he insists to me that he did not want to go public, that uh, there was some sort of uh, Del Demps, you know, sort of stepped around him. This is, this is only, only Rich Paul's version. I never got to speak to Del Demps. Um, and he sort of said, well, that's the way it happened. That's the way it went down. Your story is incredibly prescient. I mean, or Rich Paul was incredibly prescient in his sort of his humility and his prediction for what was going to happen. And I'm sure in March, when you talked to him, he wasn't trying to predict what would happen, but he sure as hell was telegraphing it. I mean, he's defending coming out with this demand. He's sort of defending the idea that Anthony Davis should or could play in Los Angeles. He's defending the notion that there is nothing in conflict with him representing LeBron James. And in March saying, I've already told the Celtics to back off. Yes. Um, So I finished reading your profile in addition to sort of being fascinated by Rich Paul's backstory and his life story, thinking, man, this guy has it nailed. He understands how NBA front office executives work, and he manipulated this process to get the desired outcome for his client in the best possible terms. I mean, uh, you know, everybody sort of feels, and and, and there's obviously a a, a part of my story where, 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 uh, one NBA exec said clutch sports runs the Lakers and the Lakers, Spokesperson had a had a great response about well everybody knows Levar Ball runs the Lakers. Clutch sports I, I do being think Rich Paul's the agency. idea of Clutch having untrammeled authority over the Lakers. Obviously, LeBron is the is the is the most sort of I don't know uh, the the most prominent figure in the organization for the moment. There's no question. Um, but if that were the case, uh, I think Tyrone Lue would have gotten five years. 
Um, I, I, I think that there is still, <laughs> I think there is still a Lakers entity running the Lakers um, uh, because they didn't get exactly what they wanted in a coach, um, but uh, the influence is, is is obviously clear. Yeah, Clutch Sports being Rich Paul's agency. I mean, right. I think that the Lakers, to me, to an outsider. And I think to everyone else on the planet, seem like a very dysfunctional organization with a power vacuum at the top. I mean, right. the, the drama between Rob Polinka, who's now running basketball operations, and Magic Johnson, who was formerly, was, it seems, <laughs> very dysfunctional. Um, Polinka is not really respected around the league as a basketball mind. And the kind of early returns on this trade, you know, I wrote and a lot of people have written that the Lakers and the Pelicans both got what they wanted and what they needed here, Scott. But within that rubric, I think people are astounded by how much the Lakers gave up and how much David Griffin, the who runs basketball operations for the Pelicans, was able to get. The Lakers have mortgaged their entire future on this deal. Yeah, no, no. I think everything you say is true, um, but as the Warriors taught us, you know, <laughs> go for uh, not the Warriors, you know, the Warriors and and Toronto in different ways have taught us, you know, long term, um, who knows? Go for it now. Get it. Get it now. Um, you know, get Kawhi now. See what you can do to convince it. Try and get a title now. I think there's this absolute sort of momentum in the air of. Um, who knows what the future holds and how long it's it's going to hold? And um, so, I, I, everything you say is true. And I think there is a vacuum is the perfect word um, uh, for I think what you know how to characterize you know everything from from Magic's strange departure, Genie Bus's sort of dotty management style. I mean, it, it's just it's 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 one of the strangest um, team dynamics. Uh, we've seen in a long time. I think that you also have to look at the sort of broader implications for this kind of trade and what it says about the NBA and the changing dynamics among players, front offices, and agents. And this is a, a complete reiteration in the strongest terms that players are ex exercising their agency to a degree that they never have before. And this, of course, is not the first example of it, but it is a very, very clear example of it for a player in his mid-20s who maybe isn't even in his prime yet in Anthony Davis, explicitly making this demand of the Pelicans in the middle of the season. With a bunch of time left on his contract. With a bunch of time left on his contract and successfully through his agent and the powerful alliances that his agent has created, being able to exert the maximum amount of power and leverage that a player can in the NBA. But and Stephen, to what end? I mean, that's the interesting thing to me was it used to be it's all about the rings. And everybody has said, well, it's all about getting these guys in. Everybody wants a ring. I'm not so convinced of that anymore. Rings are important, but there's something about lifestyle, playing with my guys, being in a city I like. I mean, I think it was really significant that Anthony Davis, who came out of, what was it, seven years in New Orleans, losing, you know, talked, there was a, a sort of lip service paid to, well, I want to get to a place where I can win. Well, the Celtics are, you know, we're in far better sure. shape to provide a winner 
for Anthony Davis than the Lakers or the Knicks. And yet, it's clear the, the Lakers, obviously, but even the Knicks were like sort of plan 1A uh, in, in this situation. Neither one of them was about um, winning. You know, that, that, that narrative construct is, 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 is different than, yeah. than the old-fashioned, you know, we've got to get Doc a ring. Um, and, and I feel like there's something going on with players, especially at this point. The, the measuring system, the competitive measure of, of control and, and um, power is, 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 is winning's part of it, but it's also I get to play where I want, I get to be where I want, and I want to be with who I want to be yeah, with. Yeah, well, isn't, isn't part of it, Josh, the fact that the way the NBA has structured its labor agreements and its contractual um, formulas over the last 20 years has basically taken the money factor out of it. So for the player, it is, where can I put myself in what position to be happy? And maybe that's just the, maybe that's the realization that players have come to, that there are other factors other than winning and it is so competitive and there are so many you know, superstar players that are trying to do the same thing. I need to get myself in a situation that will, A, make me you know, put me in a position that maybe I can compete with the eight other teams in the Western Conference that have a chance of making it to the finals, but be that I will have some long-term contentment and, and, and success. And the measure of the agent has changed. The, what, what, what used to be a, a, a place where you, would, you could be really creative and do these sort of insane contracts that, you know, can you top this? Now, now so many contracts are, for, for lack of a better word, pre-negotiated. Um, the agent's job or the measure of an agent's success is can you get my guy, can you get your guy can can you show how you're exercising that power which rich paul clearly has done i think it's a false choice the way you guys are presenting it because if you look at the history of the nba the lakers have always managed to succeed and the bet here is that obviously it's not a bad idea to go where lebron james is playing, but it was the bet that LeBron was making too, and that other stars have made before them. It's that the Lakers find a way that talent wants to go there, the talent wants to aggregate there, and that this is a franchise that has a long history of success. And the thing that's fascinating to me about this deal is that in acquiring not only the young talent from the Lakers, but in all the draft picks and in the right to swap draft position with the Lakers, David Griffin is very explicitly shorting the Lakers mm -hmm. and shorting Rob Polinka and saying, you know, it's pretty strongly Im implicit, Scott. He's saying, you are going to fail and that our success is going to be tied very directly to your failure. And I think this is sort of a battle of two ways of approaching team construction in the NBA today. On the one side, the mm -hmm. Lakers are putting AD and LeBron together for the end of LeBron's career and hoping they can assemble parts around it. And on the other side, the Pelicans are doing this much more holistic approach to the long term. Zion Williamson, a number four pick in this year's draft, right. a slew of, of, of young, potentially all-star players. Two number these, two picks. Two number two picks. Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball both were no, overall number two picks. Over number so, two so, picks so and so three first-round picks over the next four years. Which one is the best one, or, or is it a league in which you can have both uh, coexisting? Is I think the league has to have both coexisting. Yeah. I, think, I think the issue here um, is about the Lakers' dysfunction. It's a bet of, is L.A. going to be so strong 
allure, and it already has been with LeBron and Anthony Davis, that it can overcome a head of basketball operations that's perceived by people in the league as bad, as like not <laughs> above the, the mean of like uh, in, in terms of acuity. I don't for, think anybody else people. thought that Magic Johnson was a terrific basketball. No, executive. but let's be clear. Right. But in order for the Lakers to win a title, they have to fill out this roster. And I jumped to a conclusion that I think was too hasty in thinking, oh, well, they'll be able to get now Kimba Walker, or they'll try to get Kyrie, or they'll try to get Kawhi. Kawhi. But now it looks like, and and this is partly just because the NBA salary cap rules are so arcane that a normal human can't understand them. But now it looks like they are not going to have another max salary slot. And so do we really trust the Lakers to be able to build like really smartly and sensibly a roster around, they really only have three players, Kuzma, LeBron, and Anthony Davis, like to really smartly pick like veterans that all, like they did a really, 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 really bad job of that in LeBron's first year. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you were just saying, Scott, like if you're Anthony Davis and you want to be built around for the future, you're right. building around a 34-year-old LeBron James who has two, three, who knows? Right. He was injured a lot this year. Or you stay in New Orleans, you resolve your differences amicably with management, and you are paired with Zion frigging Williamson and whoever else they can attract. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, what, what, what's puzzling to me is, is L.A. and New York are arguably the two most dysfunctional franchises. Obviously, the markets are alluring for obvious reasons. But New Orleans and, say, Boston were two places where Anthony Davis could go and win, and, and, and win in a, with, with, or at least feel like it was being put together with confidence, and especially with David Griffin and, and Zion. So, sudden, so, so that, those things just didn't, didn't matter, clearly. And that's just... Uh, I, 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 uh, that speaks to me about about um, a sort of general player, not just Anthony Davis, but in general, sort of a, a, a question about uh, whether the value system has changed for me. But uh, my question for you, Josh, is: Do you think so? Are you now saying the trade is is a disaster for LA, and there, you know, that that it's it's going to be a mess going forward, or or is the jury still out, still out for you? Oh, I think it was a good. It, it's a trade that makes sense for both teams. I right. think LA gave up too much, right. especially given that it seems like they didn't have much right. competition. But I think they needed to get Anthony Davis. They had no pathway to do anything in right. the next several years if they didn't get him. So it felt like just by virtue of whether it's Rich Paul, whether it's you know the way that the roster had been constructed before, they were like boxed into this. Corner, and they didn't um, want to be boxed into this corner for the end of the greatest player in the history of the <laughs> NBA's career. Right. They could not afford to be in that position. I would, I, I guess, what I would say, Scott, is I would feel more confident about this deal for LA if I was more confident in Rob Polinka exactly. yeah. being able to, you know, build the rest of this roster. I wanted to ask you one other thing about uh, Rich Paul, and one of the things that was so interesting to me in your piece is so Rich Paul is part of this group with Maverick Carter and Randy Mems of like LeBron's right. kind of core friend group from from Ohio. And out of that group, um, according to your piece, Paul was the one guy who was really pro-LeBron going back to Cleveland That's right. from Miami. And so 
there are a lot of different qu- ways we could we could go with this. But one thing that that occurs to me with this situation is, and, and by like, the way, let me let me make that make make that clear. He he said to me that early on that was he was the one, and then eventually they all got on board and they all agreed it was a good idea. So, okay. but early on, that's correct. So, just kind of connecting this to to our current situation, Dan Gilbert was the real obstacle in going back because of the just the you know the the way that he talked about LeBron the on, owner, on his the way out the Cavaliers the um, of the Cavaliers and just Gilbert you know the the way that he ran the franchise and the way that he that he treated LeBron is can we connect that to this LA and New York situation in that um who have, the franchise is almost immaterial and who runs the franchise is almost immaterial it's like i want to get my guy to the place where my guy wants to be. And we can like work around yeah. anyone or anything. It's LeBron. I mean, it's Anthony Davis. It's that star power. I mean, he's simply, when it gets down to it, I mean, he's, he's working for LeBron and he is wielding the power, the, the reflected power of LeBron and Anthony Davis. So um, I think that's, that's where we are as a, Frankly, the NBA is sort of a, on the on the cutting edge of this more than any other sport. But that that's where we are. It is about individual agency of these stars. A lot of norms have been busted in the last decade. The idea that athletes, players who compete on the court, shouldn't be friends. Right. The idea that they shouldn't try to to sort of negotiate and manage and collude on on their future careers. Um, you pulled out some clips from. LeBron's HBO talk show in which he had Anthony Davis on as a guest. And they talk about that in such stark terms. Like you can feel the the offense that and, and the desire to control their futures, oh sort of offense over the way things have been and, and desire and, to, and to have this go forward. Over how their futures are described. Yeah, I mean, the idea that LeBron has a show called The Shop, the idea that Kobe is out there with his show, the idea that Steph Curry and, you know, these guys are, are trying to do more than just go out and play. They're, they are trying to, and, and LeBron, and that may be part of the Anthony Davis thing, which is not, um, I can go to L.A. and win with LeBron. I mean, in some, LeBron's already believes his legacy is set because of what happened in Cleveland. If he doesn't win in L.A., I don't think it's a massive, you know, uh, dent in his own self-image. Um, but what he's done is he's building an empire outside of basketball and creating a template for what a superstar player can create for himself off the court. In a way, it's not about, oh, i gotta get, I got to get a great Nike ad. That's that's the least of it at this point. That's that's not even close to what um, LeBron has created for himself and what other players are watching him do and the connections he's made outside of basketball. And I think that's part of the reason that AD wanted to get there as well. There are two things in the exchange between James and Davis on that HBO show. James says, we've got to continue to back each other up because they have so many people at the top of these food chains that will control your narrative. And then Davis says... That's what it is. All of the media coverage amount around me. Now I'm getting a chance to take over my career and say what I want to say and do what I want to do. So now as a player, as the CEO of my own business, I got the power. And the thing is, when he said that, 
I, I really thought that was significant. I mean, most people were thinking, oh, you know, Rich Paul's the puppet master, and, and LeBron wants this and that. A.D. seemed, in his very limited exposures after the trade demand, seemed to me to be very, very secure and solid and not, uh, you know, and pretty fairly eloquent, if you listen to what he said, about what's important to him. So I, I, I still think Rich Paul was, in many ways, doing A.D.'s bidding. Um, and not necessarily vice versa. As he said, I'm, I'm, I'm here to work for AD. If it helps LeBron, so be it. But my number one uh, consideration is, is AD. And, and, and then he went on to say, because in one sense, AD is going to be around for another decade, and LeBron's almost done here. Scott Price is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. His piece on Rich Paul was on the cover. Sports Illustrated, the cover line, The Kingmaker. We'll put the... Uh, link to the story on our show page. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Before we get to our conversation with Ethan Strauss about the Warriors, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, our golf correspondent Jim Newell will be here to talk about Gary Woodland's victory at the U.S. Open, a tournament that the indomitable Brooks Kepka shockingly did not win. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Last week, uh, Stefan, the Golden State Warriors lost. They didn't they did not no. win the, the the championship. The Toronto Raptors, they did win. Everyone was kind of surprised, although I guess it depends on what the horizon is that you're looking at. It wasn't particularly surprising that the Warriors lost once Clay Thompson tore his ACL to go along with Kevin Durant's torn Achilles, but the fact, you know, if we're, if we're looking back at the beginning of the year, you wouldn't have thought that the Raptors would have beat the Warriors, would you? Did you? No. No? Me neither. Uh, Ethan Strauss, The Athletic, joins us now. Surprising, Ethan? You're surprised. Don't lie. Uh, not really. I, I was saying from the outset that the series price was insane from a gambling perspective, that you could make uh, quite a bit of money um, in a realistic way, betting on the Raptors. I think the series started a plus 250 for the Raps with uh, not a lot of expectation of Kevin Durant's return. Um, but in the end, the way the way it ended was shocking. That That's what was shocking. This grievous end for the Warriors, the back-to-back devastating injuries that throw free agency completely into question, um, that was shocking. It was the way it ended. You know, you telling me the Raps are going to beat the Warriors? Sure, I can see it happening. Uh, Masai Ujiri built a fantastic team. Uh, the way it all unfolded, yeah, that that was surprising. The thing that I found particularly surprising was, I think it was Mark Spears who was talking about, you know, DeMarcus Cousins was saying, you know, I thought that I was going to be next or like wh- who was going to be the next person to go down with a season-ending mm. injury, and that nobody... I, f- I felt like the similarity to the plot of the Final Destination yes. series was, exactly not, was, was not made explicit enough, especially because it was the NBA Finals. Like, this felt like a huge layup. Finals, destination, it should have been the headline <laughs> everywhere. And the pattern fit, like... Was this a huge failing of the media, Ethan? I, I just think that, the, that series of movies is so funny because a lot of the uh, dramatic tension is people doing dangerous things adjacent. <laughs> 
you know, it might not actually be dangerous, but it just feels dangerous in the context of the final destination series where you see somebody's clipping their nose hair and, you know, the audience starts cringing <laughs> immediately as though that's the most dangerous thing you can do because you can slip on a wet spot, but only in that, you know, cinematic universe. Um, yeah, we really should have drawn that parallel to Final Destination. It, it, it was right there for us. It did feel like that. But guess what? I don't believe for the most part in freak injuries. I mean, they can occur. Uh, but I often think that we ascribe to luck that which we don't understand, like the ancients blaming the gods for weather patterns. Um, and it's just it's in your purview. It's a probabilistic outcome. The image, Stefan, of Durant's Achilles snapping was crazy. Ugh. It was. Oh, God. I've never seen anything like that before. It, 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 it jiggled like Homer Simpson getting hit by a cannonball. Yeah. It was. It was unnerving. And I that, mean, that's also what happened inside Clay Thompson's knee. I mean, the, you know, the ACL is it's akin to a rubber band, and when that thing shatters, it's it you just, know it from you know from torn ACLs. And I know from torn ACLs. Um, and those are, you're right. I mean, I, I think that, look, in retrospect, who knows? They're both playing on weakened limbs because of existing injuries. You know, we don't know the nature of the treatment. We don't know. I mean, you know more than we do about what sorts of outside medical attention they were receiving in terms of second opinions. We don't know what was mostly, going mostly, mostly leeches. Which are not ineffective from what I understand. Um, but... <laughs> But then it's it's such a, an all-consuming narrative. I mean, less for Clay, but with Durant, obviously, the sort of the the desire to be out there and whether he forced himself onto the court and whether it was the the Warriors' responsibility to say no. I mean, we're going to be consumed by this for a year, um, and the repercussions of both of these injuries are so great on this franchise. You know, I, I do find that whole scenario curious because so, yeah, the recriminations, uh, we will sort them out. We'll try to figure them out. Um, you know, I'm talking to some people. There was a player who said that Kevin Durant knew the risks. Now, the devil is in the details there. You know, was he explicitly told, hey, there's about a coin flip chance that your your Achilles explodes? I, I don't think he was. But let's hypothetically say that he actually was made aware of the risks. I, I, I do find it interesting. A lot of the people I follow and read who are big on player empowerment are also of the mind that the team must protect the player from himself. I, I, I think there's an inconsistency there. Huh. I, 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 if you, you believe in player empowerment and you think that the player should be able to make that choice, there's something odd to me about this idea of I want to play in the NBA finals oh, you're not letting me and it's your right to not let me do it even though it's what I want to do and it would help the team in the short term. I just find that interesting. Steve Kerr said very clearly that if he had known and if the team had known that this was a risk, then they never would have allowed him to play. And Bob Myers, I think one of the reasons why he was crying at the podium was oh, that- there were, there were tens of millions of reasons that he was crying at the podium. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a Knicks. He's a Knicks season ticket holder. Is, uh, is the... <laughs> That's good. Good line. Uh, he was saying, or at least alluding to, the idea that they never would have let this happen if they knew it was a possibility. These are not people Myers and Carr who are known for being like huge liars. Like they're generally thought to be sincere. Uh, 
individuals. And so how do you factor that into your calculus, Ethan? Um, they've been snookering us the whole time. Uh, they're massive liars. No, I, 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 I don't know. I don't want to cast any aspersions. I definitely think that they wouldn't have done this had they known the the risk, or at least the risk was certainly put into stark relief right there. I, I mean, it's easy to regret. It's easy to regret the decision and easy to regret what happened. And I'm just I'm waiting for the recriminations. I'm waiting for it to happen. Uh, the line coming out of there. It, I went on local radio. Uh, Tolbert, Tom Tolbert is is big out here, and uh, he is one of Kerr's best friends. And what he was saying, I suppose it's a fair argument, is why do we need to blame? Why do we need to blame? There's this urge to blame, and there certainly is in the aftermath of something calamitous. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that that urge is wrong in all instances. And in this one, things happen for reasons, and we should look into the reason as to why this happened. Something clearly went wrong. I just don't believe in the idea that this was the fates, that this was the gods. I think we can look at it through the prism of nobody wanted this to happen, that everybody involved had the best of intentions, that the people involved are perhaps hyper-competent in many respects, but it's hard to look at the outcome and not conclude that some kind of massive error took place. Our friend Marcus Thompson wrote on The Athletic that a reconstruction has been forced upon the Warriors, and I don't think he just meant Durant's Achilles and Thompson's ACL. Um, what does happen now? Anthony Davis has gone to the Lakers. There are a lot of really good teams in the Western Conference. The thing that set the Warriors apart as recently as 2016, shooting bunches of threes, is now commonplace in the NBA. How do they, I mean, let's, let's tackle it from two perspectives. One, what happens with free agency? I mean, what happens with deciding whether to sign and at what level a guy coming off of a torn ACL and a guy coming off of a blown out Achilles? And two, if you're just the Warriors, how do you maintain the, you know, the, any level of competitiveness moving to a new arena and the, the sort of the, the challenges that that entails in, in appeasing your fan base, making your fan base happy? Yeah, well, I think first first of all, you give Clay the five-year max. Uh, ACL injuries aren't what they used to be. Um, he should be back within the season, and I think he will be back to being Clay Thompson. I found it interesting uh, that there were early reports of the Warriors offering Kevin Durant a, a, a five-year five-year max, which I think off the top of my head would pay him over $40 million a year. Uh, that seems, I, I don't want to sound callous, um, a little bit imprudent, perhaps. Maybe there's an argument that it's hard for them to add talent any other way, so they might as well make that offer and see if they can get Kevin Durant looking like he's Kevin Durant again. But the history of Achilles tears, uh, that's not a great history. That's such a significant injury. I mean, the players who have it, you look at their legs. Their legs look diminished. They look half the size that they used to look. Um, that, to me, I, I don't know if that's the most prudent way to go. And I almost wonder, I almost wonder not to be a cynic if they really mean it or if the reports are completely true. I, I do. I'm just speculating recklessly off the top of my head. Um, so what do they do? It's tough. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, it was crazy to be in the arena that night. I, I remember 
being in the hallway outside of uh, the bridge club. That's where Lake Hub and uh, sort of the, the VIPs, uh, Mark Stevens, people like that, uh, not anymore, um, would would be in there and they would be celebrating after the game. And, you know, Steve Kerr and his family was in there and they were having one of those cathartic. The season ended. It was disappointing. Let's all drink and hang out. And then the Clay Thompson news happens and that's on the TV screen of the bridge club and people are booing it. Now they're drinking sadly. And I'm, I'm talking to Warriors executives and a lot of what I got back was, man, I don't I don't know. They, they're just shell shocked. Nothing in the. Uh, scenarios that they gamed out had this happening. So I'm sure they're coming up with a game plan. I'm sure that they're in the war room at Warriors HQ, uh, but they don't have a lot of options. They're capped out salary-wise. And it's so difficult because they they aren't able to score when Steph Curry sits down anyway, even with all the supplementary talent. And now there's no supplementary talent. I, I mean, this seems like it would. it's going to be so hard on Curry um, so they need to get some kind of bench scoring and that's not easy to just call up and they've lost the allure of come here and chase a ring if you're a veteran. So they're in a tough spot. So your, your thing about not wanting to offer Durant a max, come on, man. I think that the argument, as, as you know, they don't have other options for it to improve. And so the the choice is either don't sign Durant or just like do nothing. And I would rather take the bet. I mean, it's not my money. Uh, and these guys are super rich. So what do they care? Just like throw all the money at Durant and then take he's, the, he's take, underpaid anyway. Take the chance that he's going to be back to, you know, his old self or somewhere close to it. I don't know what other option that you have. Right, because aren't you essentially forced into punting the 2019-2020 season? I mean, Jacob Evans is going to, you know, they're, they're not I mean, That's this is, what, who, who this is why you're left. Who didn't? Alfonso McKinney is going to show a lot of improvement. Uh he's good at rebounding. No, I mean, I think that <laughs> they're in like a super super tough Spot. I mean, all the Warriors fans who are upset that this wasn't the like 2015 team are going to be able to enjoy that. Well, Draymond I mean, Green is still pretty good. No, I mean the one option that they have, Ethan, is to try to trade Draymond, um, yeah, to and, get a bunch of stuff back. And and you're not going to get that much stuff when there's just one year left in in Draymond's deal, unless it was some. I mean, maybe there's a scenario, a hypothetical scenario. This would not be the scenario that you want if you're Joe Lacob and you want to show off the Chase Center to all your Stanford business school friends, uh, where <laughs> Steph gets hurt, the season starts to go badly, you tank, and then maybe really try to get the the, the rebuild going by trading Draymond and uh, you know to try to tank harder. Um, that's a theoretical scenario wow. that could happen. It would be highly suboptimal. I don't think that's the thing they want to do. Um, but yeah, there aren't there aren't many good options. I think there is a good argument for trying to lock Durant up and just hope he can get back to being Kevin Durant. But there's also a good counter argument to that. The, the Achilles injury is devastating. Uh, you're not you're, you're paying him over forty million dollars effectively to do nothing. Probably on you know the front end and the back end of that. It's so rare that a dynasty, um, like you know, especially one that go you know going into the season was perceived as at the height of its powers of dominance, that the end of it would be so stark. It's generally like, oh yeah, the the 
the last like ditch thing in Cleveland where they traded for Isaiah Thomas, like that was a really bad mm. idea. But that's only in retrospect. Like at the time, it was like, ah, eh, maybe that'll work. Yeah. Like, yeah, LeBron, you know, they'll make the they'll make the finals. But it's so interesting to me that you don't need the thirty thousand foot view here to talk about. Like we can like sit here right now and talk about here's what like the Warriors dynasty meant, and here's. It it's began in this un- year and it ended this I'm, year. <laughs> I'm I'm effectively writing a book on its uh I, I don't know whether to say crumbling, but just to me the book was about the difficulty of holding it all together, um, with all these forces arrayed against sustained dominance. Uh and I did think it would be about the fall of a dynasty. I just didn't expect that it would be like hitting the iceberg on the Titanic with the water rushing in all of a sudden. I didn't think that it would be such a operatic uh, calamitous finish to it all. It is. It is crazy. It's insane. And the league just moves on so fast. I mean, you've got the Laker trade happening two days later. It, 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 they're they're old news. The Warriors. You know that was fun. Now there's something else. There's a new shiny object to fixate on in the NBA, and it just goes like that. Do you think that? So there's not just not just you, mostly you, but there's been a lot of like great writing and reporting about the Warriors um, for the last five years. And there's a lot of infrastructure around it. Like the Athletic has a bunch of people and there are a bunch of uh, folks who write about the Warriors who don't even work for the Athletic. Like how much do you think that, like let's imagine next year the Warriors are like not good. Like what do you think the the consequences of that are going to be? Well, just let's take the the ship analogy further. It's uh, we're rats fleeing the sinking <laughs> ship. I mean, I, maybe I, I published this book uh, on on the fall, which I always find compelling because, for whatever reason, in the NBA, those stories appeal to people. We focus more on the fall than the rise. People want to talk about Shaq, Kobe. They don't want to talk about. Uh, the ascent of Shaq and Kobe and how they really started clicking with their chemistry. They want to talk about the end of it all. Uh, Breaks of the Game by Halberstam is not about the Portland Trailblazers having that wondrous season. It's about them not being able to keep it together. So put out that book. Uh, I don't know. Maybe start covering the Oakland A's. Maybe really branch (laughs) out. Uh, We'll see. And we'll see the career moves everybody else makes. But it is funny in the NBA that you have a city or a spot that becomes the center of gravity um, and it helps people's careers. And then they all graduate from it and move on when it, when it stops. You certainly saw that in Miami. Um, Are we we going too far here, Stefan? Two words for you, Ethan, new Orleans, pack Mm. up your bags. Ooh, that could be, that's an interesting situation right there. You know, it's uh, the new Orleans might be NBA Siberia in terms of interest, but they have a lot to be interested in going forward and yeah we are going too far here we are uh we are maybe getting caught in the moment if you have Steph and you have clay you've got a basis for a pretty a pretty good team it's just not going to be the prohibitive favorite at least not for a long while and maybe in a way it gives people there was this winners on we hanging over the warriors and maybe in a way it gives some of the people within the operation uh reason to do things because it gets old Winning can be a bit of a lie. It can stop feeling so sustaining. People like to build. And when they feel like all they're doing is maintaining, that's not as happy as it would seem from the outside. Well, back to Josh's point about not signing Durant or your point about not signing Durant. If you go into 2020 and you still have Steph, 
Clay and Draymond, and you have the ability to sign some other players, suddenly the they narrative don't, is reversed. The salary cap is is still a thing that exists. Well, like without, that's the reason to give Durant the money is that they don't have the ability to go out and sign a big Well, I don't know player. how long, Ethan, how much, how far going forward do they not have any ability? Are they salary cap dead until 2022, 2023? Or is there going to be some flexibility in the next offseason, particularly with the salary cap going up as it's inevitably going to? <laughs> I mean, a lot of it just depends on on Durant, you know, and, and is he going to be there? Is he not going to be there? You're going to have, I, I think, more to work with, uh, but you're not going to be able to add another max guy. I mean, that's the bottom line. I, there's just no way to add another max guy. Now, maybe you can fit enough talent around Stephen Clay in the way that the Toronto Raptors, uh, in the way the Toronto Raptors did, where they just had so much supplementary talent. Um, that it was enough combined with Kawhi to win the championship. But you're not going to be able to get one of those big fish, not not for a long while, not with Steph making over $200 million and Clay Thompson getting a max contract. And I also just love how we're living in this like magical fairyland in which it's like totally up to the Warriors. If they want Kevin Durant, like maybe we'll sign him, maybe we want. Oh, <laughs> here, here, KD, we'll, act, no, we'll, give you, we'll offer you a contract. It's like if, it's going to be totally up to him. Like all of these teams are going to, well, it's this Durant. crazy. It, there's a crazy irony, and I, who knows what's going to happen. Where it seemed like he was pretty much out the door, but then perhaps, and let's say perhaps, let's throw the caveats at it. Perhaps the Warriors mismanaging the injury uh, led to a scenario where he would resign because suddenly there's the security of five-year max contract after you rip your Achilles. So there might be this uh, this ironic scenario where the Warriors um, having a hand in something awful happening to Durant is the reason he signs with the Warriors. Uh, crocodile tears from Bob Myers, evil genius. Ethan Strauss writes about the Warriors for The Athletic. Uh, thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me, guys. Now it is time for After Balls, and we need to go back to a thing that Ethan said in passing, the uh, bridge club where the Warriors, uh, you know, the the power elite, the power elite, the power brokers, the powers that be spend their time in Oracle Arena. I found a story from Sports Business Daily from 2013 uh, that, that begins Warriors co-owners Joe Lacob and Peter Goober have made Warriors games the place to be for the cool kids, and they are doing it in a uniquely Bay Area way, according to Al Sarasevic of the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. The Warriors Bridge Club at Oracle Arena is a swanky secret sanctum and a plush little party room stocked with fine food and finer finer wine. The club sees Silicon Valley swells mixed with local celebrities and Hollywood types behind a huge one-way looking glass wall. <laughs> I, is that the uniquely barrier thing? The one-way looking glass wall? That Stephen? has to be it. Um, I just hope that they come up with something even more exclusive and one percent when they move to San Francisco. Oh, they have to. I mean, this was Oakland and it was 2013. You know, property values in Oakland at the time were only like you know $600,000 for a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, the Bridge Club will remember it well. Uh, hopefully, uh, the the newer, greater, swankier big, big, Bridge Club. Big name drops in that San Francisco Chronicle story. Matthew Perry. And Chris Tucker. And Phil Helmuth, the professional poker player. Who would not want to <laughs> rub Hobnob. elbows with Phil Helmuth? 
Do you prefer Hobnob or Rub Elbows? Well, I said Rub Elbows, so clearly that's what I prefer. All right, Stefan, what's your bridge club? When I decided to try to remake George Plimpton's 1966 classic Paper Lion, 20 NFL teams blew me off. Then I called the owner of the Denver Broncos. I knew Pat Boland pretty well. He was chairman of the owner's broadcast committee. I had covered the league and its TV deals for almost a decade at the Wall Street Journal. Boland was a good source, honest, happy to talk on the record and to leak off of it. The Broncos weren't among the first 20 teams I called because I figured there was no way that the head coach, control freak Mike Shanahan, would would let a reporter inside, but I underestimated Bolin. And when I finally reached out, this was in early 2006, the league was in the middle of TV negotiations. I made my pitch. He paused and said, huh, I figured you were calling about the TV deal. And then he paused again and said, I wouldn't be averse to this sort of thing. Bolin died last week of complications from Alzheimer's disease. He's received enormous love in Denver media from former players, league officials, and fans. 35 years as owner, 18 playoff appearances, three Super Bowls, 300 straight sellouts. Yeah, sure, he extracted a sweetheart public deal from the city for a new stadium, but he was the guy who gave Denver a winner and a decent person, too. The NFL today isn't that much different from the NFL 13 years ago, cloistered, defensive, restrictive, controlling. Boland stood out because he didn't believe professional football was a matter of national security. He got that it was entertainment and that fans were hungry for details. He knew players would do and say dumb shit and screw up, but he didn't mind someone seeing it. A serious book by an outsider, not an NFL beat writer, a business writer, could be fun and different. He appreciated the idea and he ran with it. You're not going to be just hanging around, he said in that first phone call when he told me to show up for minicamp. No bullshit. You better be ready to kick. Boland didn't put any restrictions on my reporting. He did ask that I not make him a main character of the book, but I'd regularly stop by Boland's office overlooking the practice fields. He'd pop his black cowboy boots on his mahogany desk and we'd talk about his family background in oil and mining, about his fellow owners, about the team, about the art and memorabilia on the walls. He answered every question. He cursed. He treated me like a friend. He was the most candid sports owner I've ever met. I'd earned his trust over time, and he reciprocated. I'd see Bolin in the weight room every day, grinding away for 45 minutes on the Stairmaster. He looked near collapse, but then I learned he was a former Ironman triathlete with a resting pulse at age 62, near 40. Bolin was modest, but he famously wore a fur coat on the sidelines in the 1980s, and when I was there, drove a dark blue Porsche Cayenne Turbo. He parked it in a warehouse space at the complex so that he could walk to his office through the places the players worked, the weight room, the field, the cafeteria. That was telling. Bolin wanted to see and to be seen by his employees. He paid close attention to operational details and weighed in when necessary, but he let people do their jobs. You wouldn't find him cosplaying a GM, standing on the sidelines in coaches' clothes, eyeing the players like a plantation boss. He was approachable, and he wasn't a tightwad, which the players appreciated. You could pay a guy $50 million to play every year, Jake Plummer, the quarterback, told me that summer. But if you don't get the little things that make you feel appreciated, fuck it. I can walk up to Mr. Bolin and be like, hey, Mr. Bolin, those are sweet boots. Where'd you get them? Oh, these are some fucking ostrich skin. You got to get yourself a pair of these, you little fucker. The little bit you get from that makes you feel like, goddamn, they appreciate you here. They take care of their people. A lot of owners say they're only in it to win, but I think that's a lie. They're in it for the ego, for the attention, for the acclaim. I honestly don't think Pat Bolin was. 
I'm not going to be judged on how much money this organization made, he told me in one of our conversations. I mean, fuck, that doesn't even enter the equation. Zero. It's how many games did he win? How many Super Bowls did he win? There's not a lot of things I really want other than winning Super Bowls. I mean, what do I want? A bigger house? No. Own my own jet? I mean, none of that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me at this stage in my life. For a rich beyond imagination NFL team owner, that passed for self-aware. Bolin was a decent man who got rich and bought an NFL team. I still can't believe he let me kick for the Denver Broncos. Rest in peace, Pat Bolin. Did you call him Pat or Mr. Bolin? Most people called him Mr. B. I called him Pat. I could not do the <laughs> Mr. Bolin, Mr. B thing. Good for you. Um, how much should... Those of, those of us who did not get his permission to write books about his franchise, how much should we um, include in our calculus the fact that he is one of these owners who got a massive public subsidy uh, for his team? Because if we were talking about him just as like some NFL owner that we didn't know personally, I think we would both consider that to be like a pretty big strike against him. Yeah, except that I don't think the people of Denver considered that a huge strike against him. I think they considered it was a sales tax that generated most of the revenue to pay for the stadium. And I think the Broncos kicked in like 150 or 180 million toward the cost of the stadium, which ended up costing over 400 million. Um, that for the city, for the investment, it really is one of those weird, smaller cities that feel validated by having a championship organization. I think if Bolin were a guy that ran the franchise into the ground or didn't generate any public goodwill or wasn't sort of an active philanthropist in the community, yeah, he would have been treated much more harshly. But people really liked Pat Bolin and, you know, and I think they were willing to accept that there was public investment to build a new stadium for him you know, in his 30 plus years as owner of this team. I think you did a really good job in that remembrance in pointing out that like he was in the like 99th percentile of NFL owners, but he was an NFL owner and he had the same kind of habits and penchants and personality of an NFL owner. So he's not, he doesn't stand outside that group, but he shows kind of the best of what that group could be. I think that's absolutely right, Josh. He, 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 he never denied his power or his authority or, or ran from it. He wasn't a casual owner. He ran it as a business, um, but he was a good guy when he did it. So whether that's sort of sleight of hand to get the players and the, and the front office to sort of overlook the sort of realities of working for an NFL team, if that's the case, he did a great job of it, but I think it was just genuine. He did make players feel like, I want to play here. There was another guy on, the, on that team, Ian Gold, who hated the NFL, hated everything about it, hated you know, every aspect of the hierarchy, of the patriarchy, and he said that, yeah, but they treat me well here, so that's why I came back. And it seems like, based on that Jake Plummer anecdote, players like that he cursed. Yes. <laughs> I like that he cursed, too. Because the thing, if you just look at it from just the pure content of that sentence that he said to Jake Plummer, it's like the way that Jake Plummer felt respected is just like, literally, he said, they're ostrich skin boots. And it's like, wow, what a great guy. Right. <laughs> There's the 
they could talk about <laughs> ostrich skin boots from one rich guy to another. Go buy yourself a pair, Jake. That's really the kind of at the, the core of our relationship is our ability to talk about ostrich skin boots. So my afterball is going to be talking about your afterball. Uh, I think we will let we'll let that one stand alone. That was really great. Um, and we should also take a moment, Stefan, to note that it's our producer, Patrick Fort's last week as our producer. Who is going to tell us about hockey now? Well, Patrick still can. We'll just have to call <laughs> him up, I guess. He will graduate to the ranks of of guest. Yeah, folks uh, will know Patrick from his uh, appearances on the show talking about hockey. Folks will not know about the emails that Patrick also sends us about hockey, which we'll still be expecting to get from uh, from Patrick and uh, for many, would, low the, many years. And though we would like to announce that Patrick has been signed as by the National Hockey League to become unofficial, but not yet. That could be in his future. For now, he'll be moving on to bigger and better things working in public radio. Uh, we'll miss you, Patrick. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer, for the last time, tears. This is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, Go to slate.com slash hangup. I'm doing a Carly Lloyd golf <laughs> for Patrick. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you are still here, you might possibly want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I talked to Jim Newell about golf's U.S. Open and its new champion, Gary Woodland. I feel like you hear all this like cursing and all this bitching and whining, you know, throughout the round. But that's probably what happens in, you know, literally every hole that anyone plays in golf. But you only hear it this one time a year on the Fox U.S. Open broadcast. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Listener.